Well, I want to welcome everybody uh, this afternoon to the Cato Institute. Uh, as you can probably tell if you know Cato, uh, not only am I a forum participant today, I'm also a host. Uh, so just for my brief hosting duties, uh, I want to mainly, first of all, thank uh, everybody on the panel and, and our moderator today, Greg Tapo, for uh, agreeing to participate. And I'm just going to introduce Greg, the, the moderator, real quickly. Uh, and then he's going to take over, and we're going to get right on with our program. Uh, Greg Tapo is USA Today's national K-12 education reporter. He's a graduate of St. John's College in Santa Fe, which I've been to both now, and I think that's by far the more picturesque, although the one in Annapolis is nice. Uh, if anyone's from there, but I think the one in New Mexico is a little bit nicer. Me too. Good, good, good. So we, we're agreed on at least one point. Um, he, uh, he taught uh, both in public and private schools for eight years and then moved into journalism. He worked for four years as a wire service reporter with the Associated Press, uh, first in Baltimore and then in Washington, D.C., uh, where he became the AP's national K-12 education writer. I should also say that uh, it might have been at the very beginning or the end at the AP, uh, I had just started a place called the Center for Education Reform. I think Tank does a lot of good school choice work, charter school work. And I ran our, our intern program, and you agreed to speak to our interns. And it was a great talk. So I'm always coming back to you to help me out for free. Um, he, he went to USA Today in 2002. Uh, and that's where he remains, and he lives in uh, west of Baltimore with his wife and kids. And now, Greg, it's all yours. Thank you. Oh, you want me to go to the podium? Sure. I'll start at the podium and then graduate to my chair. So we're, um, thanks, Neil. Um, we're at a really interesting time, I think, um, when we're talking about uh, school choice and uh, social cohesion, you know, there, to me there are a couple of things happening right now that in a way sort of make me think that the, the conversation that we've been having for several years are kind of sort of turned upside down. And maybe the panelists will agree, maybe they, they won't, but I'll just give you a couple of kind of bullet points, things that I see. You know, we've got, and Mike, Mike is um, intimately familiar with this, um, writing about this in his book, you know, we've got um, cities uh, changing their demographics. We've got a couple of cities that are no longer uh, majority black. Um, places like Baltimore and DC, and now I think New Orleans is it's happening. We've got um, new census data showing that um, for the first time, I think it was in 2010 or 2011, um, non-white births uh, outpaced white births. Um, we've got research by um, folks like Gary Orfield and others, um, talking about how the suburbs are now, in a lot of places, more diverse than the cities, and in some places, um, more um, uh, stratified. And then, of course, we've got the school choice movement, um, which I think has, has produced some kind of interesting results. Um, you know, <coughs> there's only about 5% um, of kids now in charter schools. And that seems like a small number until you start to break it out. Um, so the, the, the national, I think it was the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools a year or two ago um, did some uh, number crunching. And they found that uh, from 2010 to 2011, the number of kids in charter schools had risen by about 200,000. And to put that in perspective, that's essentially 
the population of the Houston public schools in one year moved to charter schools. Um, so we've got kind of an interesting shift taking place um, on many fronts. Um, <clears throat> and what, what, what better way for us to talk about um, diversity than to have four middle-aged white men um, <laughs> work it out. Um, I'm gonna introduce our panelists. Um, to my immediate right is Mike Petrilli. Um, he is executive vice president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. He's also a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and executive editor of Education Next, which I think one of the um, one of the more intriguing uh, journals. Um, I sort of look forward to that one almost more than any other one every month. Um, he's the author with Rick Hess of uh, No Child Left Behind, a primer. Um, uh, and the recent book, do you have a, something you can hold up? Mm -hmm, I do. The Diverse Indeed. Schools Dilemma, A Parent's Guide to Socioeconomically Mixed Public Schools. It, it's short. It's not this short, but it's not much longer. <laughs> blessedly short, Jay Matthews said. Yeah, it is blessedly short. I, yeah. I, I read it myself. Um, previously, Mike was at the uh, U.S. Department of Education's Office of Innovation and Improvement. Were you, was it, were you like the founding members of that? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Um, <coughs> excuse me, to his right is Rick Kallenberg. <coughs> excuse me, my cough. Senior fellow at the Century Foundation. He's also the author of many, many books, um, including um, one you probably have read, Tough Liberal, Albert Schenker, and the ba <coughs> Battles Over Schools, Unions, Race, and Democracy. And uh, the Future of School Integration, Socioeconomic Diversity as an Education Reform Strategy. And of course, to my left is Neil. Associate Director of um, Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. <clears throat> Excuse me. Another former teacher. I guess I, I think everybody's either taught or dabbled in it at some point here. Law school. Say it again? Law school. Law school, that counts. <laughs> um, as he said, he was um, a policy analyst at the Center for Education Reform and uh, the author of the book Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises. American education. So it's going to be an interesting uh, session. Um, we're going to start with Mike. Good. Um, because Mike has um, most recently um, thought very, <coughs> excuse me, heavily about this stuff. Mike, um, talk about the, the research you did for your book and what some of the what some of the most surprising things were that you found. Um, and if you could just set up. Um, for those who haven't read it, set up the dilemma you're talking about and how you personally um, played played into it. Great. Yeah, we can. All right. Thank you, Greg. Thanks, Neil. Happy National School Choice Week to everyone. I think we should be wearing our yellow scarves as a part of that. Uh, it's great to be here and appreciate the invitation to talk about this really timely issue. Uh, Timely, some people would say, look, we've been talking about this issue about diversity <coughs> and race and class for a long time, and we have, though I would say, and, and Rick has certainly uh, has, has said this before in May today, that the education reform movement that I'm proud to be a part of hasn't been as focused on some of these issues. The sense that many of us reformers, at least of sort of my generation, uh, have, have felt is that, you know, an earlier generation of reformers tried the desegregation thing, and it failed. Uh, it led to white flight, uh, and once white flight happened, uh, then desegregation no longer was feasible. Uh, and so rather than try to go back and refight all of that, 
talk about busing again or forcing this on people. We should get about the business of making our schools as, as strong as possible. And that means that even in, in cities or other areas, if that means high, high poverty, high minority schools, let's just get about the business of making them work. And we point to the, the great schools out there like the KIPPs of the world or some of the Catholic schools showing that, that it can be done. Uh, but uh, as, as uh, Greg was saying, something is happening out there in terms of demographics. Uh, Alan Ehrenhart, uh, a few blocks away at the Pew Center, has a book out called The Great Inversion. And he writes about how you have increasingly affluent people moving into cities like Washington uh, and lower income families moving out uh, to the suburbs like Prince George's County. Uh, and you see this happening not in every city, but in many of America's great cities around the country. Uh, and this creates new opportunities, also new challenges. There's pros and cons to these trends, but, but new opportunities to create schools that are more diverse racially, socioeconomically, because people of different races and, and economic backgrounds are now living in some places at least in closer proximity to one another. Um, so this was the backdrop for the book that I wrote, The Diverse Schools Dilemma. Uh, and it was really inspired by what I was seeing happening here in Washington, where now I've lived for about 15 years, uh, a city that is rapidly gentrifying, and very interested in what's happening with the schools as that, as that takes place. And in neighborhoods like Capitol Hill in particular, but some other parts of the city, where suddenly, for the first time in decades, uh, upper middle class families and white families were starting to look at traditional public schools again. Uh, schools that they had not considered for, for a long, long time. And this is happening here in D.C., but it's also happening in pockets of Denver, where I was the other day. Uh, it's happening in Brooklyn, for sure, in parts of Oakland, in parts of... In other words, all at the same time, this phenomena started uh, where upper-middle-class families started looking at the public schools again. Now, I think that we can talk about what that was, and I think part of it is generational, that Gen X, Gen Y uh, parents... Uh, have been living in the city since their 20s. We grew up watching Friends and watching Seinfeld, and the cities became cool. They also became much safer. Uh, you know, we moved into these gentrifying neighborhoods, and now uh, many of these young people want to stay once they have kids and are trying to make it work. Might also be the fact that many of them are underwater on their mortgages and can't move to the suburbs even if they wanted to. Uh, and they certainly can't afford private school in, in the current economic conditions. So you've got this interesting dynamic where you have some schools changing, and in some cases quite rapidly. And in places like D.C., you have charter schools playing an interesting role, where you now have some charter schools that are serving a diverse population, including some schools that started out with a mission of serving high-poverty kids that have themselves started to gentrify as middle-class families have, have given them a look. As a parent, I was interested in this because I was trying to decide uh, whether we were going to stay in the diverse urban neighborhood where we lived in Tacoma Park, Maryland, the People's Republic, uh, right across the line from D.C., uh, a town that is, is renowned as, as being sort of the Berkeley of the D.C. area, but that also has very diverse schools, Title I schools, uh, about 40% low income, uh, pretty well balanced, black, white, Latino. Uh, and as a parent, I was looking at these schools, and they had kind of a mixed reputation and kind of lackluster test scores, and trying to figure out, okay, would they serve my beloved sons well? Uh, and can any school that is both trying to serve the needs of kids coming from poverty or immigrant kids who are still learning the language, can they serve those children well while at the same time they can serve children who are coming in with all the advantages uh, of having you know, well-educated parents and professionals and uh, affluence and all the rest? 
uh, how do they deal with that? So the book gave me an opportunity to find out. And so in the book, I go into all the, the sort of pros and cons. Uh, two things that I want to talk about today in terms of this, this question of diversity and school choice that I think are most relevant. Um, I mean, I should just say, I became convinced, and, and a lot of it was from Rick's previous research, that there's huge benefits for all kinds of kids to, uh, to go to school in these kinds of diverse uh, environments. Um, but there's also challenges, and they really come down to two things. The first challenge is that in these schools that have a lot of socioeconomic diversity, there is a huge amount of academic diversity. Uh, kids from poverty tend to come into school way, way, way behind. These enormous academic deficits, much smaller vocabularies, uh, you know, very limited exposure to letters, to numbers. Uh, sometimes preschool program has helped, but not always. And kids that are more affluent in general tend to come in way ahead, already reading, already doing math, ready uh, for a lot of acceleration. Now, every public school in the country has to deal with this to some degree. Uh, that there is some spectrum of students, uh, unless they are in some way selective and have some selective admissions. But I would argue that in these economically diverse schools, the spectrum is just that much wider, especially at, at the young ages, because we know that, again, the, the, the impact of poverty on, on school preparation is just so dramatic. So how do you handle that? And in the schools that I went to go visit, you know, you could see them struggling with this. The most obvious thing to do, and what many schools used to do, is some form of tracking or ability grouping, right? You would take kids who were already reading at the second grade level and you'd group them together and you'd teach them together in one group. You'd take the other kids who were still learning their letters and you'd group them together and, and help them. That still might be the most sort of efficient way to go about it. However, uh, if you're talking about a diverse school, what you will tend to see on average, not always, but on average, is many of those groups break down by race and class. Okay, and so suddenly you've got a school that on the surface is integrated, is diverse, people feel good about that, but the classrooms or the ability groups are not diverse. Uh, and, and, you know, understandably, and I think for good reasons, a lot of parents and teachers don't want that. So, so the schools have got to struggle with this, and, and it's really hard. I don't think there's any perfect solutions other than trying to maybe group part of the day and not the rest of the day. The other uh, issue, and I think this gets a little closer to, to what's on Neil's mind with this topic, is how do you handle in a diverse school the very different parental preferences and values that come into a school like that? Now again, I'm gonna talk in generalities and, and almost stereotypes, and so we have to be careful. These, there are exceptions to all of these rules, right? But there's pretty good research that will show that parental preferences and values do differ, and they tend to differ by class. To some degree by race, but especially by class. That parenting styles differ by class, and what parents want out of their schools differ. Now part of it again goes back to this academic question. If you are upper middle class, two parent family, uh, your kids, frankly, don't need that much from school. I mean, they're coming in with all kinds of advantages. They're probably already coming in reading. They're getting the content. They're getting a lot from you. You can be a little bit more choosy and playful for what, what the school experience provides. If, if your kids are coming from poverty, most likely the only place they're going to get the vocabulary and the content, the academics, and all the rest that they need is school. They have much greater needs from school, you could argue. Part of it, though, is also about the kind of school parents talk about wanting. When you look at some of the surveys or focus groups or research, and you ask a group of upper middle class white parents, you know, what kind of school would you like for your children? 
You'll have different camps. Some will want something. Some of the tiger moms will want something very sort of traditional and push, push, push and get my kid into Harvard. But you'll have a fairly large group, I would argue, especially in urban areas, of upper middle class white parents who will talk about something relatively progressive. I want a Montessori or a Waldorf school, like where we were sending our son to preschool, where they play with wooden blocks and they don't learn to read until their teeth come in at age seven. Uh, and they frolic in the hallways. I mean, this is, you know, something they, they want to learn how to learn, and they want to, uh, you know, uh, a lot of art and music and appreciation. You talk to African-American parents, and in general, on average, these are stereotypes, okay, but on general, what the research will show is they will tend to talk very differently. They will say, we want something that's much more back to basics, more traditional, more structure, uh, more uh, discipline. I want school uniforms. I want more formality, all right? And so, when you have those different groups under, in the same school building, the question is, how do you make it work? How do you try to meet the needs of all those different parents? There was a study in Seattle where they had a controlled choice program. And a researcher was able to go in and look at the schools that the parents actually chose for their kids and then talk to the parents about it. And the white parents would talk about wanting, they, they talk about this alternative school that they loved. And it was, you know, a lot of hands-on learning and project-based learning. And they even called the teachers by their first names. And the parents thought that was great. And the same researcher talked to this African-American mother. And she was talking about the school she wanted for her child, and, and talking about a little more traditional structure. And, she, and the researcher said, did you consider this school, this alternative school at all? And, and she said, what? Are you crazy? They, they let the kids call the teachers by their first names. <laughs> you know, there was just such differences in terms of this perception of what they wanted. And so, um, so I think that's the other big challenge, is how do you create a model, a design, a an approach that does appeal across these lines of race and class? Now, what I found is that it is doable, and we've got some great examples right here in DC of that happening. A new charter school called Basis that's uh, quite diverse. Uh, E.L. Haynes is another one, um, some traditional public schools on the Hill. What you tend to find, though, in my, in, from, from my research, is that they tend to be fairly traditional. They are not quite as sort of tough and structured as the no excuses charter schools like KIPP. They're kind of no excuses light. They're a little bit lighter touch. But it is very hard to find uh, diverse schools that are also educationally progressive. And I think that's because a lot of history, a lot of evidence, a lot of research has shown and experienced that those more progressive models just don't work well for poor kids. It doesn't give them what they need academically. And so to the degree that we're going to have choice and we're going to have a way to create these diverse environments, uh, they're going to tend to skew more traditional. Now, they offer something that attracts the middle class families, a math and science focus is a big one, right? Language immersion is huge. There's a whole bunch of language immersion charter schools here in DC. A couple that are Spanish, a Chinese one. Um, uh, and, and these schools have plans down the road to merge and, and come together for high school. Some pretty cool stuff. I mean, that kind of thing can attract, but, but you don't tend to find something more on the, on the more progressive side. One last point, if we want to have schools like this, it's going to take some public policy to make it happen. Um, in the absence of public policy, what you're going to have is what's happening right now in Capitol <coughs> Hill, where Brent Elementary has gone from being a mostly African-American school serving low-income kids to being a school mostly serving upper-middle-class white kids in the matter of about five years, as the, the school is just flipping from one to the other. There's no structure in place to keep it diverse. Um, I think that charter schools have a great advantage here in, in purposely creating diverse environments, but the kinds of controlled choice programs that, that Rick has argued for, I think, also have a place. And we can talk later about how to make the libertarian case uh, for those kinds of approaches. Thanks. Thanks.
Great, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here, and I want to thank Neil for inviting me to be part of this, um, uh, the, the white guys panel on diversity. Um, and uh, uh, we do have some ideological diversity, which I think will make the discussion interesting, but I hope we can bring uh, people in from the audience soon, too. Uh, so first of all, you know, congratulations to Mike for his, his new book, uh, The Diverse Schools Dilemma. It's, it's really terrific. I did a review of it in the Washington Monthly. And um, for someone who comes from the progressive side of things to see uh, you know, Checker Finn's right-hand man um, talking about diversity has been uh, a real thrill. This is uh, this is a don't rub it in. To, 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 to my mind, this is is really uh, a recognition that the traditional education reform model hasn't gotten us as far uh, as as we would want, and and the fact that that Mike comes out of that mainstream education reform movement and is willing, to his credit, to acknowledge. Uh, that there are some limitations of that approach, I think, is really, really significant. Um, so I've got a, a uh, PowerPoint. Um, so my, my uh, the, we'll have stylistic diversity mm -hmm. uh, as, as well. <coughs> um, and uh, I want to start with, with uh, you know, Neil's, Neil's big question, um, as outlined in the, uh, the invitation. Uh, how can schools not only cope with diversity, but also uh, capitalize on diversity and, and celebrate diversity and make this a, a strength in our, in our public school system. Um, and uh, in thinking through that question, it seems to me I, 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 that we, we want to try to cover three main topics. One is to kind of get fundamental and, and think about the goals of public education in our country. Um, secondly, to talk about uh, the conditions necessary in schools to reach those goals, and then finally to talk about the policy implications. Um, so I would outline two main goals of, of public schooling in, in this country, um, kind of to, to address that threshold question. Uh, the first is to you know, raise academic achievement in order to prepare uh, individuals to participate in a capitalist economy. And along with that goes the idea of social mobility, that that schools are meant to provide kids from any background the opportunity to uh, excel and, and be all that they can be and, um, and contribute in many ways to uh, our society and to our economy. Uh, the second main goal that most of us outline for uh, public education is uh, the promotion of American identity. I, uh, Greg mentioned I wrote a book about Al Shanker, the uh, great union leader, um, head of the American Federation of Teachers. And he was asked, you know, why do we have public schools at a conference? Um, and there was this um, kind of awkward silence in the room. No one knew what to say exactly. Um, and, uh, and he said it, it's to teach kids what it means to be an American. Uh, that in an incredibly diverse society, one in which, um, you know, people aren't um, aren't born American in the same way that they are born a Kurd. Uh, you become uh, an American. You, uh, people from all over the world become American. And that that involved uh, 
public education providing a sense of, of what it means to be an American um, and, uh, and to really identify those things that hold us together, uh, that the public schools are there um, to do that. Uh, and then finally, I would suggest that we, we need to maximize uh, parental choice in education, but only to the extent it serves those other two goals. Um, so a lot of people today talk about maximizing parental choice as, as kind of the, the key goal. Um, and I think we have to be cognizant of parental attitudes. I mean, we know what happened uh, in, in Boston circa 1975 when there was compulsory busing and parents had no say in the matter. Um, that doesn't work in this country. Uh, but there are these, uh, to my mind, that's a, a, a subsidiary goal to, to try to um, promote uh, consumer choice, um, but I would argue only to the extent that it can serve those those other two goals and is consistent with those other two goals. And I think that's where maybe we'll have the nub of the um, uh, disagreement on on the on the panel. Okay, so then we go to question number two. You know, under what conditions can we try to achieve those goals of uh, social mobility uh, and and social cohesion? Uh, and to a lesser extent, maximizing choice. Um, so uh, it, it seems to me if you want to create a system in which we can promote academic achievement and, and social mobility, you want to create an environment in where students of all different backgrounds are able to go to schools of high quality, and that would include some key ingredients. You want to be around peers uh, who are academically engaged and uh, have a high expectations for themselves. You want to be in a place where uh, parents are actively involved in the school. You want a place where teachers are of high quality and have high expectations for students. And the problem, uh, one of the central problems we face in American public education is that those three key ingredients are very rarely found in uh, segregated high poverty schools in this country. Um, sometimes you can find it, but it's extremely, extremely rare. So to go through some of those data, first I mentioned you want a place where classmates are going to uh, encourage achievement because there's a whole body of research to suggest uh, what every parent knows, which is that uh, peers have a powerful influence on any individual student. And in a, uh, a mixed income school, low-income students are going to be surrounded by uh, students where there are uh, where there's much less disorder in the classroom you'll see behind me the the levels of teacher disrespect based on the socioeconomic status of the school uh, it's an advantage to be in a school where there are lower levels of student mobility uh, we know that poor families move a lot more often than middle-class families and so as a result High poverty schools have constant churn of students, and any teacher will tell you that it's very difficult to create a, uh, a culture in a classroom when, a stable culture in a classroom, when throughout the year, students are constantly leaving and new students are coming in. Um, and third, as, as Mike alluded to, you know, students, uh, kids come into kindergarten with varying uh, degrees of, uh, academic achievement, um, and if you take one example, the vocabulary of low-income kids is much, much smaller 
than the vocabulary of middle-class kids. And that's important because if you give a low-income child the chance to go to a mixed-income school, she's likely to be surrounded by peers who have much larger vocabularies. And so in the classroom and on the playground, there will be lots of um, opportunities to, to learn from your peers. Uh, the second piece is uh, the parental community. There's a lot of research to suggest having an active parental uh, group <coughs> improves education. Um, sometimes, you know, that can be taken to an extreme. In, uh, in places like Bethesda, you may have parents who are a little too involved uh, in school affairs. But for the most part, you want parents to be involved in a PTA, to volunteer in the classroom, uh, and to be a set of eyes and ears who can be on top of things when, when the school has trouble. Uh, middle class families, for a variety of reasons, are much more active in, the, uh, in PTAs, much more likely to um, uh, volunteer in the classroom. Uh, let me pause by saying I, in no way do I want to disparage uh, low income families. If, they, if the parents are working two jobs and don't have a car, uh, to get to a PTA meeting. It's totally understandable that they're not uh, participating at the same level as middle-class parents. But the bottom line is that if you are a low-income student stuck in a high-poverty school, uh, you are likely to have um, a very uh, inactive uh, parental group there, and that's, that's bad for everyone's education. Uh, the final piece is the teachers, and if life were fair, the low-income kids would get the best teachers, and we know that on average the opposite happens. Mike has a great line in his book where he says, basically, inexperienced teachers practice on poor kids uh, early in their career and then move to, to middle class. You know, those who have the options, those who are best qualified uh, will move to middle class schools. Uh, if you look at, uh, in Washington, D.C., at Michelle Rhee's um, impact evaluation of teachers, uh, which is very controversial, but uh, is one measure of teacher quality, uh, you find that the, those who were rated highly qualified were most likely to be found in uh, the most affluent wards of, of Washington, D.C. Teachers essentially consider it a promotion to move from a high poverty school to a middle class school, even if the salaries are the same. Um, now, people will, will often point out um, that uh, we all know of high poverty schools that, that break this mold. And there are um, the KIPP schools and, and some regular public schools are able to overcome the odds. And the media love to talk about those, uh, those particular uh, schools. I, I don't think, Greg, you've written an excessive number of articles on that, that topic. But, um, but you know, th these are they're heartwarming uh, stories. And so you can understand why people, uh, why journalists like to write those. But uh, if you look at the, the data nationally, uh, middle class schools are 22 times as likely to be high performing as low income schools. So those, those are not good odds um, for, uh, for those who are in, in the high poverty environment. Now, that figure of 20 time two, 22 times as high performing is related, of course, not only to the quality of the school, but the incoming uh, academic uh, background of the students, so um, it's important to separate those two. Uh, this figure is from the, the NAEP uh, uh, exam of fourth, in fourth grade math, and looks, the top line is the scores of middle class kids 
the bottom line is, is low-income kids. And uh, as you move uh, from, from left to right, you're moving from uh, very affluent schools where very few kids' classmates are, are low-income to the high-poverty schools. And there are two things to note here. One is that uh, low-income kids who are stuck in high-poverty schools are scoring about 20 points lower than low-income kids who are in more affluent schools. Uh, 20 points translates into about two years of learning you know, at, the, at the fourth grade. Uh, the other thing to point out is that low-income kids uh, who have the chance to go to more affluent schools are actually scoring higher uh, than the middle-class students who are stuck in the high-poverty schools. So in designing choice systems, there's, there's a strong argument for trying to address po uh, poverty concentrations. Um, now, some people will say, what about self-selection effects here, right? I mean, who are these low-income kids who, whose parents fight their way into a low-poverty school? Uh, maybe there's something particularly um, special about those parents. They're really um, academically motivated, and that's a valid question. So uh, I want to just talk briefly about one study in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, that tried to address that issue of self-selection by looking at families who were randomly assigned to public housing units in Montgomery County uh, throughout a variety of um, parts of the county uh, and, and look at, at the results there. So Montgomery County uh, had two main strategies for improving academic achievement for low-income kids. One was to pour extra money into the higher poverty schools uh, for good things like reduced class size in the early grades and professional development, extended learning time. Uh, but then they had another strategy, a housing strategy, which provided that if a developer builds uh, a certain number of units, she has to set aside 15% uh, of the uh, housing units for low-income and working-class families. Uh, and so when, students, when families applied to public housing in Montgomery County, they were, were essentially randomly assigned in the sense that almost everyone took the first choice, you know, whatever public housing they could get. Uh, and so we had a, you know, kind of a sharp question. If you're a low-income student, are you better off in a higher poverty school where they spend about $2,000 more per pupil or a lower poverty school where you might have some of the benefits that, that I was talking about? Um, and the students in the green zone, the more affluent uh, schools, did uh, substantially better than the students in the red zone schools, those with higher levels of poverty, uh, but, um, but extra financial resources. Um, the researcher in this study, Heather Schwartz, found that there was a substantial effect, um, in, particularly in math, in attending a uh, low poverty school and living in a low poverty neighborhood. Uh, the math gap was cut in half with middle class students, and the reading gap was cut by a third. Uh, most of the effect had to do with what school you were attending as opposed to uh, the, the neighborhood that you, that you lived in. What about the impact on middle class kids? Um, the research going back, uh, particularly with, with racial desegregation, found no negative effect for white students in integration. And the same thing has been found with respect to socioeconomic integration. Uh, so long as a majority of the students are uh, middle class in the school. That is to say, if you plunk a few middle-class kids into a very high-poverty school, they uh, are not likely to do 
as well. Um, but so long as there's a strong core of middle class families in the school, uh, there were no negative effects on academic achievement. And uh, you know, this leads me to the second point, the, the positive uh, effects on middle class kids and others um, on, uh, on having the, the diverse environment. Um, so the second big goal we talked about was promoting social cohesion. Um, in an increasingly diverse nation, that's particularly important. Um, and uh, today we had, you know, we used to have two public institutions where people of different backgrounds came together. Uh, one was the military when we had an, um, uh, when we had the draft for men, at least, uh, and then there are the public schools. And now that we have an all-volunteer army, we're left with the public schools as the one institution, uh, really strong institution, for promoting social cohesion. Uh, and the research finds that uh, students of, of different backgrounds have reduced uh, uh, prejudicial attitudes, reduced bigotry. When they come together, um, I mean, this was the, the belief in Brown versus Board of Education. And there, uh, you know, this, this ought to be common sense today, but here are a bunch of, of studies for anyone who's interested in, um, uh, in, in looking at that, that question further. The social science uh, clearly supports the, um, the basic notion that there are reduced levels of, of prejudice and, and uh, greater social cohesion when kids of different backgrounds are learning together. Uh, okay, last point I want to make is about the policy implications. Um, so uh, I think this suggests we definitely need a lot more choice within our public school system. So long as so-called neighborhood schools reflect residential segregation, uh, we will not have economically and racially integrated schools. So, um, so I'm very much in favor of much more public school choice, including charter schools, uh, to the extent that they also can promote um, racial and economic integration. But I have two caveats uh, to the idea of, of more choice. First is that there uh, ought to be uh, some fairness guidelines put in place so that choice will lead to greater levels of economic and racial integration than um, residential systems. There is some evidence uh, from a number of European countries as well as in the United States that completely unregulated choice can actually lead to higher levels of segregation by race and class. And so I think it's important to have those fairness guidelines in place. Uh, the second is that the choice ought to take place within the public school system, not, uh, not in a system of private school vouchers. Again, there's evidence to suggest that private school vouchers can lead to higher levels of racial, economic, uh, and particularly religious uh, segregation in our, in our schools. Um, uh, one footnote, uh, I've been talking about socioeconomic integration in, in terms of policy rather than racial integration for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, under the 2007 Supreme Court decision uh, in, uh, in the Picks case in Seattle, the Supreme Court disfavored the use of, of race, uh, although it left the door open a uh, crack. Uh, as a result, most school districts that had been focusing on racial integration now look at socioeconomic integration because that's, that's legally bulletproof. Uh, the academic benefits are more closely related to the economic mix in a school as opposed to the racial mix. And so for that academic um, piece, 
uh, for that academic goal, uh, it's important to have a socioeconomic mix. Um, but thirdly, I'd suggest that socioeconomic integration is, is important because it indirectly will promote uh, a fair amount of racial integration, which I think is a positive thing for, for social cohesion. Uh, to give you one example, a concrete example, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, they have uh, no system of neighborhood schools. Everyone chooses. It's universal choice within the public school system. And, uh, but they have a, in place a guideline which suggests that choice should be honored to the extent that it promotes integration and that they, so they have a goal that all schools should be within a range of the free and reduced price lunch average uh, for, the, for the district. Um, Cambridge has had very positive results with their socioeconomic integration programs. You can see here that their graduation rates for all groups, including uh, whites and, um, uh, but in addition, you know, low-income black and Hispanic students, that graduation rates are much higher in Cambridge <coughs> than in uh, nearby Boston, uh, which is much more highly segregated, and, and even in Massachusetts as a, as a whole. Um, so the final thoughts I want to leave you with. Um, number one, uh, poor kids can learn if given the right environment. Um, now, that sounds like a cliche, but the reason I say it is because many people, when they hear me talk about poverty concentrations, come away with the idea that I'm saying poor kids can't learn. Um, and of course, the idea is precisely the opposite, that if you give low-income students the chance to go to an economically integrated school, um, they can, can uh, achieve at, um, at, at high levels. Secondly, to echo Mike's point, 95% uh, of education reform is about trying to make separate but equal work. Uh, and that hasn't led to very positive results. So uh, I would argue part of the discussion should be how can we structure public school <coughs> choice in order to promote integration. Uh, and finally, that in places like Cambridge, it has been possible to marry the ideas of integration and choice, uh, not honoring either perfectly, um, but making significant progress uh, on, on both. That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. <clears throat> well, uh, before I begin uh, the, what I prepared for you today, I just want to do a little pushback. You've been hearing a lot of disparaging comments about the physical diversity on the panel today. Uh, and as the guy who put the panel together, I just want to point out that there's only one fully bald person up here. Uh, at the very least, only one person who's fully embraced their pending baldness. So there is some physical diversity here on the panel. Uh, beyond that, though, I want to make two really basic arguments for you today. The first is that government schooling, public schooling, despite what we uh, aspired to have it be, has not been the great uniter that we were told it, it has been or that it should be. And I'm going to argue that by letting people, the term segregation would be used, but basically by letting people choose uh, their own educational options, that true unity and social harmony will be better served than by having government either assign you to a school or sort of uh, manage where you go to school. Now, uh, obviously, this is somewhat counterintuitive, so just please hear me out before you get angry at me, uh, and I'll try and work through this. So let's start with that assumption that, that 
public or government-run schooling would unite us. This has clearly been a long-term message. It started with, well, even before Horace Mann, but in this country we think of Horace Mann first, then John Dewey, and the modern-day uh, Amy Gutman or, or Al Shanker. Uh, this idea that if we have these government schools, that they'll sort of bring together, first of all, physically, in many cases, diverse people who otherwise would be separate. Uh, it would also bring them together to kind of hash out their differences because they have this common institution they're trying to run. Um, it would also teach them common norms. So when we talk about what it means to be American, that the public schools would do this. These would be the, the ways that we teach the next generation what it is that makes us an American society. And it would also kind of concretely teach us about our institutions, you know, Congress and, and serving on juries and all these other things that go into our civic responsibilities. But this isn't how public schooling has worked in practice. Uh, for one thing, for much of our history, public schools were controlled by, generally speaking, small communities. And people tended to live with people a lot like themselves. So these schools were serving very homogeneous communities <coughs> for the most part. Uh, like everyone, I'm going to talk sort of in generalities. There are always differences here. But it's a big topic, and we obviously can't teach, treat every small difference. So in general, this was the case. Uh, and of course, for much of our history, we didn't allow African Americans to get any education. And when we finally said they could, we said, you have to be in your own schools. So in a humongous way, tremendous way, we failed. The public schools failed in doing what we've sort of been brought up to believe is what they did. Uh, and this is not restricted only to African Americans in areas where there are large Hispanic populations or Asian populations. We saw similar segregation. So at the thing that the schools were supposed to be doing, they, in many cases, we punted. Now, when we did allow large uh, minorities, groups, into public schools, there was often divisive conflict. Where we saw allowing minorities to, to at least have access to public schools was religion most notably Roman Catholics. And for much of our history, the public schools were de facto Protestant institutions. And they did a very poor job of, of providing what Roman Catholics wanted. And, and most people have never heard of, unless they've been to Cato before, the Philadelphia Bible riots in 1844, where essentially there was two waves of warfare over whose version of the Bible, if any, would be taught in the Philadelphia public schools. Would it be Protestant? Would it be Roman Catholic? Would it be any version? By the time this was over, you had tens of people dead, hundreds of people wounded, millions of dollars of property damage, ultimately arguing about what would these schools that were supposed to serve everyone do. And so what's <coughs> the solution to these kind of problems been? Well, if you look at either at the US or abroad, it's often to let people have their own educational choices. Uh, most European countries have more school choice than we do. Often it's delivered by subsidizing religious schools as well as non-religious schools. In Belgium and the Netherlands, they had these kind of school wars that we had. And so they released all the pressure for conflict, rather than say, well, we're going to keep trying to have everybody have this one best system of schools. In the US, a large way that the Roman Catholic uh, disagreement and, and conflict was settled was Roman Catholics established their own schools. By 1965, 11% of school-aged children were going to Roman Catholic schools. So the way we brought peace, it wasn't through doing what we were told the public schools would do, bringing everybody together. It was people both here and abroad said, 
We've got to let people have what they want, rather than being in this zero-sum game where you have to fight your neighbor to see who's going to get the education they want for their children. Um, now, and then you can think further in our history. Absolutely, it was essential that we end forced segregation, legalized, <coughs> required segregation. But we did run into a lot of problems, divisive problems, when we tried to compel integration. You, you've got to think back, but if you think about Pontiac, Michigan, and Denver, Colorado, people literally blew up buses when they were put under orders to go to school through busing. Boston, of course, as we talked about, was a tinderbox for a very long time when busing was ordered. Um, and today, while most people, sort of in the abstract, they express support for racial integration in the schools, when you ask them then, well, would you support having some sort of compelled busing or compelled transportation, not even close to a majority would support that. They say, no, I want the local schools. But if we could get integration, that would be good. So uh, then we can go to the empirical work on race relations and attitudes. And, and I should start off by saying there, there are actually a lot of problems with the research that was done on intergroup relations and changing in attitudes with integration. There was usually no pretest. What were the attitudes before integration? What were the attitudes after integration? There's, it's very difficult to, to decide what constitutes chosen integration versus compelled. So you might choose to move to a district that had some sort of some busing or compelled integration because you valued that. So do you call that choice because you chose to go to that district? Or because you were in that district and had to then participate in busing, was that not chosen? These are things very hard to tease out in, in the research. So what I'm going to say is from research that's, that's very flawed. Uh, and so none of this is conclusive, as is often the case with social science. But what it actually seems to suggest was probably there wasn't a positive overall effect on interracial attitudes. And if anything, it might have been negative, might have been. Again, very hard to tease out how much of this is compelled, what choice, what are the attitudes going into this. Um, but there is, and I'm going to talk about this in a second when I get to part two, there was one important caveat, actually, when you look at the research that's fairly consistent, where it showed where integration did lead to, to greatly improved interracial contact and psychological bonds. Um, I, I, I won't belabor this point, but today you can see across public schooling constant conflict. In fact, we have a map that we're populating where you can find it in every state in the, in the union. But you can just read your newspaper. I mean, you think about, you see battles over creationism and evolution taught in the schools in state after state after state, conflicts about sex education, speech rights of students, what books are in the curriculum, what books are on the bookshelves of the school library. We're constantly seeing people in battles, and that's just values kind of issues. There's also, you know, what year do you teach algebra? Is it eighth graders? Is it ninth graders? Do you use phonics? Do you hold language? It's because we all have different opinions on things, different values. Research is inconclusive on lots of different matters. And we're forced to fight about them when we have this one system we all have to pay into. But only those with the most political power ultimately control. So um, there's a, a wealth of evidence. Again, I wouldn't say it's a closed case, but a wealth of evidence that public schooling, at least as it was constituted where you were essentially assigned to a school, uh, not only didn't unify, but perhaps divided people. Um, and I think at the very least, the evidence is compelling that we need to at least look at the question, 
Is it possible that having one system of government schools is actually more divisive than unifying? It may be, as Francis Fukuyama put it in his book, Trust, that, quote, social capital, and when I talk about social capital, it's the bonds between people. Not that are imposed from above, but between people. He said, social capital is like a ratchet that is more easily turned in one direction than another. It can be dissipated by the actions of governments much more readily than those governments can build it up again. So government can force us into conflict with each other, but it can't force us to like each other or to agree with each other on lots of different things. So which brings me to part two of my argument. Maybe letting people choose, even self-segregate along all sorts of different lines, may be the real key to lasting harmony. Now, this is the more radical notion, but just hear me out. And again, I won't say any of this is proven empirically. Um, but the first reason that this may be the key to actually building true meaningful bonds between people is the elimination of this need to go into conflict with each other to get what we want out of the schools we all have to pay for. You know, let people choose whatever, you know, that teaches their religious values, or, or maybe where students are more like us in terms of race or ethnicity, or any number of things that we fight about. Maybe it's a whole language school, maybe it's a phonics intensive school, whatever it is. That's sort of the defensive reason to make educational freedom, not any sort of compelled or coerced togetherness, the heart of the education system. It will keep us from having to participate in this zero-sum game. Uh, more importantly, I think, though, I think it's likely that over time, as people choose things that offer something they all want, it'll bridge these divides that they have. So, um, Magnet schools, charter schools are, I think, moving us in the right direction that way. So if you want a science-intensive program or math-intensive or something like that, whether you're black or white or Catholic or Jewish or whatever you are, you can go to that school. And your interest in that common thing could potentially help you to overcome those things that divide you, the race or, or or religion or whatever it is. One problem, and a very major problem with magnets or charter schools is they can't be religious. And many people want a religious component to their education. It's very clear, if you look around the country, that that is the case. Um, and so these are too limited, magnet schools and charter schools, too limited, really, to, to run this mechanism. But it's much better than where you simply assign people to schools based on their address. or. or just based on their economic situation and you need some sort of balance, or their racial situation, anything like that. Now, the empirical evidence for this is very limited because most people aren't thinking this way yet. I hope many more are soon. But Green and Mello in 1998 found that lunch tables in private schools were better integrated by race than lunch tables in public schools. This is important because you can be assigned to a public school, but you're not usually assigned who you sit with at lunch. And what this suggests is, and it just suggests, but that people chose a private school, and that thing they chose is a greater bonding mechanism, something that they share in common, more powerful than whatever it is had divided them. If race was dividing them, this helps to overcome it. Um, also, James, 2003, found there was greater racial harmony in religious schools than non-religious schools, suggesting, again, that this religion the people held in common overcame those things that might have divided them. 
And then there's that caveat that I talked about earlier on. While forced integration seemed to have a negligible or perhaps negative effect on racial attitudes, what was found pretty consistently was participation in extracurricular activities and sports seemed to have a very positive effect. But of course, those are chosen things. You choose to participate in extracurricular. You choose to participate um, uh, in sports. And, and if you know Gordon Allport, he's kind of the progenitor of contact theory, where he said, this is how we get people together to overcome stereotypes. But there were provisos, he said, needed to be, meet, to be met. It wasn't enough just to say, let's get everybody in the same place. And one of them was, he said, there needs to be pursuit of common goals. Well, clearly in a sports team where we talked about the military, which was successful in terms of integration, you have very common goals where you have to work together. And so it shouldn't be surprising that that sort of thing brings us together. And so this is what school choice was also enabled to do. Hmm. People coming together if they want a religious, you know, they want to go to school where they learn more about their religion, or they want to practice the tenets of their religion. Then they're working in concert with people rather than thinking, well, we're all fighting for the same limited resources or something like that. Uh, now, it's worth noting that while there's not huge empirical evidence uh, supporting the educational freedom as unifier hypothesis, uh, neither is there much showing that it's actually a balkanizer, which we are told we're supposed to fear, is that people would choose sort of their own little clannish groups and worse than that, might then be at odds with each other and in conflict with each other. I think actually the lesson from the Balkans is most people wanted to be separate, and the wars were often fought because somebody said, well, you can go, but we want all your stuff. So it wasn't that people were fighting somehow because they wanted to be together. In any event, European nations provide an excellent living example for us of how choice has worked out, where most let you choose a school that is religious. And their biggest divisions for centuries were religious. It was religion. There, we find very little evidence, at least of the old warring groups, that they are in conflict with each other. In fact, the importance of religion in Europe has greatly decreased. Now, a lot of things are going on there. But at the very least, it suggests letting people choose their own religious schools didn't caused them to spin off into little clans. If anything, it had probably enabled them to live without fighting and eventually to move closer together. Um, similarly, some studies have been done that control for socioeconomic status and other characteristics. And what it suggests is that private school students, including religious students, tend to be more tolerant of others. This is one of the things we say Americans are tolerant of people with other viewpoints. Well, kids in religious schools controlling for these characteristics tend to be more tolerant of people who say things they don't like, even things that are opposed to religion. Um, they also tend to be more knowledgeable about civics. They also tend to, to volunteer more in their communities, not just in their schools, but in their communities. All things that we thought or want the public schools to inculcate in students. Now, this again, not universal. Always a problem. We speak in generalities. There is some evidence that students in religious non-Roman Catholic schools sometimes are less politically tolerant than people in public schools. There is some evidence of that. But overall, the preponderance is that choice does not divide and might actually better inculcate those values that we think the public schools should be inculcating that make us better Americans. Now, overall, I mean, I take it as a good sign that all of us on this stage recognize the need for choice to some degree or another in education. I mean, I think we learned in the 70s that you, you can't just compel people to get along. 
Now, I should say I don't know that about Greg because he's a good journalist and hasn't tipped his hand on where he sits. So I'll just say, among the three of us who are supposed to be spouting opinions, there seems to be agreement that there is some need for choice. But I would submit that broad choice for all people, not constrained choice, is the key to maximizing social cohesion in a diverse society. Force basically often forces us to fight, while freedom ultimately lets us truly, in meaningful ways, come together. We're, we're, we don't have much time. Um, I want to get make sure I get some questions in. So, you, you know, Neil, you, you, as you were talking, I was thinking, you, I, I, can I call your theory the old married couple theory? I don't know why, but sure. So this idea that if we want to get along, we should stay apart. Oh. That's sort of a negative cast on it. Well, but you, okay. know, sort of, you, you know, I have a lot of questions, but I, I want to give um, the folks over to my right here, um, a chance to just respond, you know, in whatever way, brief, uh, uh, you can. We sure. just, just be aware that we have about about 25 minutes total, and I want to make sure we get some questions in. M yep. Mike, you want to just take a couple sure. minutes, and maybe Rick, too? Yeah, I, I, first of all, I agree with a lot of what Neil argued. I'm a supporter of school choice, uh, and fundamentally, I think the parents should get to choose their schools, and that... Uh, to the degree that people choose to be with others who have common values, uh, that is okay and probably even a good thing. Um, where it comes down to this issue of, of uh, socioeconomic diversity or racial diversity, I think though if you want there to be a choice in the system that includes diverse schools, uh, then you can't just sort of let the market take care of itself. Uh, there's got to be some mechanism to make that happen, I believe. Uh, and, and so for example, in, in a city like Washington, as I describe on Capitol Hill, you have a lot of parents who will tell you, and I believe them, white parents, black parents, wealthy, uh, low income, who say, we very much want these schools on Capitol Hill to be diverse. Um, but the way the system is today, because there is neighborhood preference uh, for people who live in those school zones, if that neighborhood becomes predominantly white or predominantly upper middle class, then eventually the schools are going to become that same way too. Uh, and this tradition on the hill of serving kids who are coming across the Anacostia River out of boundary, that that's going to go away. That those students are going to get pushed out. Uh, and so without some kind of mechanism, so for example, some kind of uh, policy that says we're going to reserve a certain number of these seats in the school for out of boundary students, uh, and we're going to redraw the school zones or get rid of school zones entirely so that people don't have a right uh, to go to the school closest to their neighborhood. If we don't do those things, then those people who want that choice are not going to be able to have that choice. Uh, likewise, in the charter sector, I think the charter schools have this great advantage. They are schools of choice, so they can locate themselves strategically and they can purposely go out and recruit a diverse student body. Uh, but if you only, if, if the way that they accept their students, if they're oversubscribed, is just by an unweighted lottery, what can happen is suddenly if you get, say, a lot more upper middle class families applying than low income families, over time those schools will no longer be diverse. And so again, I think there's an argument for having mechanisms in place to keep them diverse so that there is a choice. And I, and I would say it's kind of like uh, zoning regulations. You know, there's a lib I have a libertarian streak that says, Ugh, you know, I hate all those zoning regulations, but I think we would many of us would agree that if everywhere in the country had no zoning, 
that eventually everywhere in the country would look like places that don't have zoning today. You know, there'd be a lot of big box stores and there'd be a lot of strip malls and there'd be a lot of parking lots. If you want to maintain as a part of the market for residential communities or business communities, some communities that look like the quaint communities that we have in parts of DC, uh, then there has to be zoning in place that says you can't knock down historic buildings. Uh, you know, you've got to maintain the character of the neighborhood. And that in, in the pursuit of having choice and not have everything just become sort of look like everywhere else, that you've got to put those kinds of regulations in place. So I think there's a similar argument. If you want, their, if you want parents to have the choice to send their kids to diverse schools, then we've got to put some kinds of mechanisms in place. I'll, I'll just have, um, make three quick points. First, um, first I, I agree with Neil that, that when you have a system of public schools, there is going to be conflict. Um, to my mind, that's, that's just part of democracy, that if people, are going, people with different views are going to uh, come together and try to wrestle with problems, and uh, that there will be some um, disunity, and that's fine. That's, that's part of the, the democratic system. Uh, and in many cases, people will come out of those disagreements with a deeper understanding of what they have in common, and, and that, that's the, that can be a glory of, of the public school system. Second point, um, on, on the private school lunch, integrated lunch uh, rooms, um, I mean, I've always been intrigued uh, by that notion, I would say that there are pr probably ways to get to that same idea through things like public magnet schools, where you may have uh, white families and poor families and African-American families, Latino families, middle-class families. They're all coming to a school because they want their kids to uh, flourish in the arts or, or uh, flourish with computers, whatever the particular theme is. And that's the wonderful aspect of, of magnet schools, that they can unite people <coughs> of very, very different backgrounds around a common idea. We don't have to go to a system, private school vouchers, in order to, to get, uh, get, people agree, get people from disparate backgrounds to come around uh, a common idea. Finally, um, I guess I want to ask Neil if there are any limiting principles to choice. Um, so, you know, in, uh, under our Constitution, under the First Amendment, everyone has the right in this country to send uh, her children to private school. Uh, that was decided in 1925. We can't compel anyone. Um, but there's a separate question about whether public funds should be used to support schools that many of us would find abhorrent. Um, so under a system of public school vouchers, my question is, you know, is it okay to have KKK schools? Is it okay to have Al-Qaeda schools? Um, and if it's not, then what's the limiting principle? How do we, how do we figure out where to draw that, that line. So the idea that, that sort of socially accepted abhorrent ideas. Um, where, yeah, where Holocaust denying school. I mean, I, there, are, there are lots of ones you could, could pick, but um, 
does the principle of freedom extend to uh, public support for whatever parents want, even if they're schools like that? That's, that's the question. All right. I didn't know this was all going to be about me, but that's okay, because uh, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared. The, this is the diversity, right? We that's diversity. right. We well, it's the Cato Institute. I ought to get to monopoly. It's a time I promise not to. I'm just going to try and hit these real fast, both what, what Mike and Rick said, uh, in order. That means it'll probably be jumbled, because my notes don't make any sense. Um, but the first question is, uh, well, I should first say, Mike talked about that it, there's a likelihood if we let people choose schools, everybody chooses school, you wouldn't have diverse schools. Uh, I don't think that's right. So long as there are people who value diversity, they will be choosing diverse schools. I can also say, in a very real world way, my child goes to a private school uh, that is very diverse, ex extremely diverse. Ethiopian kids, Hispanic kids, white kids, everybody's there. Um, and this is something, of course, that we pay for. We have to pay for on top of the public schools. So we see in existence right now, despite the bias against going to public or to private schools, that these schools exist. Uh, but I, I got to push back a little bit against the, well, we hate big box stores and we hate things that all look the same. You might hate it. I might like it. But it's a reflection of the fact that some people really like having the convenience of the big box store right near their house. And so on one level, we might sort of say, well, we recoil at the idea that I can't go to Old Town Alexandria, maybe, and see everything sort of frozen in whatever year it's supposed to be. I haven't really figured it out yet. Uh, but so, uh, you know, 1850 or whatever it is. Well, you know, that's, that's one thing. But what if the people who own those houses say, you know, I'd like to change those houses? Or what about all those people who say, I'd like to just go to the waterfront or something like that? We can't decide we're going to make decisions for everyone else because we like a particular thing and say, if you like something else, we're freezing you out of that. I, think, I, um, I, I mean, I think Mike's point on, on the big boxes isn't so much um, one person choosing over another. It's it's if you if you open it up, everything's going to look like everything else. But that but that's ultimately what it comes down to. The reason that uh, you uh, I don't think everything will look the same. But the reason that they're big box stores is because lots and lots of people like big box stores. They have chosen those things, and they've chosen them versus other things. Now you can also you know there there are lots of different areas you can move to where they're not big box stores. I, don't, I haven't looked enough into zoning to say where that's all because of zoning, but not zoning. But the, the point ultimately is we can't say we value X and then forget that lots of people value lots of different things. And that, that's the, just the point I want to make on that so I don't take forever. Yeah. Um, uh, then as far as um, conflict being part of democracy, I mean, I, I, I hear this a lot and I understand it, is that we would come together and, and sort of talk about the things that are dividing us. But there are a few problems with that. One is, often we, it doesn't work that way. Whoever has the most political power, which isn't necessarily the person who's at the school board who has the most persuasive argument, they're making the decision. And we are not fundamentally a democracy. We are a country that's based on individual liberty. And the problem is, after we've talked about all these things, a decision is made, and minorities, the political minority, ends up being told, you lose. You can't have what you want. And we are in a, in a society that is supposed to be protecting the rights of minorities more than anything else. Uh, and then finally, for the limiting principles, and I, I swear I'll stop, um, you would, I would say you would be allowed to choose a school. First of all, I wouldn't go with vouchers. We prefer tax credits. It's a, we can get into the details of that. But you wouldn't let somebody choose a school that preaches violent, conducting violence against other people. 
But you need to let people choose all sorts of different ideas, even if we find it abhorrent, remembering that we might have opinions other people don't like, and it would be unjust to say, well, you know, somebody has now decided my opinion. I'm a libertarian, and I'm disgusting to people, and now I can't have a school or something where I teach my kids that you should be good libertarians and read Ayn Rand all day. So just to be clear, so a peaceful KKK school, a peaceful Holocaust-denying school, that's okay. So long as they don't preach violence. Yeah, uh, and I should also point out that... With that public, the, do public the, dollars. The going. instance of schools like that would probably be very small. In Europe, they've, been, they've looked at what's the prevalence of, of these you know, crazy schools if people can choose them. Very small. In this country, they appear to be very small if people can choose them. What usually the argument comes down to is, well, there are a lot of schools that might teach creationism. That's a totally different <coughs> ball of wax. But I think, to some extent, this is a straw man that it would only be on the margins. But if we're going to have a free society, we don't want to empower whoever can get the most political power to say, this is acceptable and this isn't, as long as that school isn't telling kids, go impose yourself against the will of others on them. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I have to agree, Rick, that this, we know this is a straw man. I mean, you can look at this empirically. There's now tax credit programs in many states, including a study we had out today, uh, out this week on uh, school choice regulations. Finally, some of these tax credit programs very lightly regulated. And I would challenge you, go to Arizona, go to some of these places, and try to find the KKK school. I don't, I don't, the, the, I don't the think that they that I'm exist. Worried, the point isn't that I'm worried that they will uh, take over our, our system of education. The point is that it goes to kind of the fundamental philosophical rationale for, for why I pay for other people's kids' education. Why, you know, people who don't have, why, why Neil pays for, his kids are in private school, yet he pays for public education. Why people who can't have kids uh, nevertheless pay for public education. And that all has to do with these twin rationales, it seems to me, that we want social cohesion in this country of incredible diversity, and we want social mobility. And to my mind, the fact that my public money could be used for an Al-Qaeda school, a peaceful Al-Qaeda school, uh, is, um, undermines the whole reason we have public schools and the whole reason that everyone pays for public schools. I, I'll just take one second okay. to answer that. Yeah, I, 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 I just want to say, actually, right. I agree. I mean, that is a problem. That Once there's public dollars connected, that's a problem. I'm just saying we're probably better off with more freedom. But we like tax credits because you can choose whether or not to donate to a scholarship grant organization. Now I'm done. When did you guys go uh, to supporting tax credits over vouchers? Or have, have you ever supported vouchers? Maybe I don't. Yeah, well, I mean, we like all of them more than right. the current system, but we've express a preference for tax credits for, oh, I don't know, 10 years. Okay. Maybe. Well, I think that's a very oh. smart move, too, because if you look at, you know, vouchers have been uh, gone up for referendum 10 times and, and lost every time. I mean, even in Utah, people, people like public schools in this country. There's, a, there's what Terry Moe described as a public school ideology in this country. Um, and, and so I think anything that, that doesn't say vouchers is, is a smart Political move. Let's let um, let's get to questions. Um, so quickly, um, we have time for just a couple of questions. Um, okay. Um, so 
if you can wait for the, uh, just raise your hand, wait for the mic to arrive at your seat um, and speak, obviously speak clearly, loudly. Please identify yourself and if you have an affiliation, let us know what it is. And also, if, if possible, um, direct your question at one of the panelists. Um, just kind of help focus things and obviously keep the questions as short as possible and make them questions. Yeah, this gentleman right in front here. Well, first of all, thank you for your... Uh, wait, hold uh, on, your mic's not on yet. Oh, yeah. Sorry. There you go, okay. Is go it on? Okay. Yeah, yeah uh, my name is Craig Olson. I'm uh, retired from uh, the State Department Foreign Service Officer. A little louder, uh, please. Hmm? A little louder, please. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, my question uh, is for Mr. McCluskey, and it has to do with a word that you did not use in your presentation, but that appears in, in one of the handouts that we got, and the word is indoctrinate. Mm -hmm. You use the word, you say the public school, you talk about the public school's ability to indoctrinate children. I'd like to ask you what you mean by that, and then I'd like to have the other panelists say whether they agree that public schools indoctrinate children in the way that you will have just defined it. Yeah, I don't know the handout. Was that something I wrote? It, it's possible I used the it's, term. It's, uh, sorry, it's, it's this, this one here. Uh, I can't really see it, but that's okay. Do you want to go why with that we, word? Or why we fight well, how public schools cause, cause social conflict by Neil McCluskey. It's in 2007. Yeah, okay. Well, so, I, you know, I probably did use indoctrinate. I, I, I want to step back from that a little because it's too loaded a word. That is the ultimate concern. The ultimate concern is that whoever has, can get the most political power uses the schools to control the minds of kids. But uh, the... Well, so you say, look, you are only allowed to learn these things. We will tell you that you must. It, this is sort of what was done to many immigrants, uh, you know, during the uh, turn of the century, turn of the previous century, which is you will no longer speak the language of your parents. You will no longer use their sort of folk ways. The right way to exist is with these mindsets. And in the revolutionary period, well, after the revolutionary period, but the early Republican period, there were some founders who spoke very clearly, saying, if we want to have people who have freedom, we first have to control their thoughts, their beliefs, their feelings about this country and what their role is in it when they're children. So indoctrination is the ultimate concern, but I don't think anybody's really shooting at that. So, uh, and it's too loaded a term, probably, to use it again. But it is a huge concern. And think of it this way. Now, people can argue about the, the merits of creationism, all they want, the scientific merits. But what we're telling, or what some people want the schools to tell kids, is that if you have a belief in creationism, you are backwards, you're illogical, you don't make any sense. Hold on, wait, and so that is... So are you, are, are you walking back or not? I, that's what I'm, it's well, not clear. Well, so I'm, I'm saying that the term indoctrination was probably too freighted and that people aren't trying to indoctrinate, but that, that is the ultimate concern, is that you have a government so that can, would try and control what is in kids' heads. So you're concerned about it, but you don't see it happening? Or? Well, I don't think that anybody right now is trying to use the public schools okay. to indoctrinate. Okay. I don't know. I, I, I think you could argue that there are schools that have very strong points of view, uh, you know, and it goes both ways, right? I mean, there are schools in more liberal communities that will use textbooks on U.S. history, for example, the Howard Zinn, you know, history of uh, people's history of, of America, you know, that it definitely has a strong point of view that uh, America has, is, you know, 
evil, or maybe that's too strong a word, but uh, fatally flawed and oppresses people and, you know, I mean, clearly teaches a point of view uh, that some would find to be offensive or un-American. And there's examples on the other side as well. Now, w partly what happens today is that we have such clustering by, uh, by neighborhood that, uh, and po politics that we've had this uh, big sort, I think Bill Bishop, uh, who was it? Uh, yeah, Bill Bishop called a few years ago, that you know, people have moved to communities that tend to be very strongly liberal or very strongly conservative. And so to the degree that their school boards can reflect those communities, and so the school's curriculum tends to be more liberal and more conservative, that maybe cuts down on the conflict. But anyway, it happens today. And I think the point that you know, choice would help to ameliorate, where at least a parent would be able to choose a school uh, who's who are teaching values that lined up with what they wanted uh, could help. Yeah, yeah. Any follow-up you want to make? Rick, do you want to jump? jump anything in? In I mean, so I guess I do want our all public school students to be taught about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and um, and American democracy. I don't I don't see that as indoctrination. Um, I think we all, alongside of the, all of those things we want to teach critical thinking and, and the, the challenging of, of assumptions from no matter where they come. My kids are rabid about recycling. It's very, <laughs> okay, thanks. Gentleman over here. My name is Greg Squires. I teach at George Washington University, and I'm on the school board of the Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Mm. Uh, none of you talked about money, particularly the reliance of public schools on the local property taxes for funding schools. It seems to me this has a dramatic uh, impact on, on, on inequality and the lack of diversity, and the failure to directly address this, I think, will make all these efforts difficult. Mm -hmm. And I say this in part because, Neil, I, I, your presentation was, was great and enjoyable, but I think it's strikingly naive in terms of what it reflects about the reality of inequality and power in the United States today. Uh, so I would like any, any of you to, to talk about what could be done, if anything, or about the reliance on the property tax for funding schools, uh, or if you think that's really not a problem. So, so do you want to, do you want, do you want to, you want to address whether whether another system would would make equality happen more like efficiently? To, you I'd think? like to hear what you think. To to what I think this is a major barrier, though, okay. the reliance on the property property tax, tax specifically. Uh, and I'd like to hear your assessments of that. You want to tackle that? I mean, it certainly has been a major barrier. I think there has been great progress in lots of the country to either rely less on property taxes or to find ways to equalize funding. And now you have a situation where most big cities uh, are pretty well funded, not all, but pretty well. And certainly the one we are in right now is probably overfunded, you could argue, um, and some others are as well. So I think that there has been some progress made on that front. When you get into any kind of choice system, this is a big conversation, is how is the money going to work? In the charter sector, some states have figured out how to tap some of the local money as well as state money, and those tend to have more charter schools and more healthy funding. In other places, it's just the state money, and that's a big problem. Um, I think that uh, the area where we've seen the least choice is certainly across school district boundaries, and it's largely for the reason that you talk about. Now, you know, that's why I'm more bullish on this opportunity within a city like D.C., now that we have some changing demographics, et cetera, to be able to make the diversity thing work, you know, versus ever trying to make it happen, you know, between D.C. and Montgomery County or Arlington or something like that. What about, what about can either of you guys tackle the idea of, of 
you know, a funding equalization across the state um, and whether that makes a difference in this? I, there's certainly evidence from Michigan, I would say, that if, if you move towards greater funding equity and less reliance on property taxes, that's very helpful for the cause of school choice. I mean, Michigan has this has had, since John Engler was governor, this open enrollment system, and it was quite vibrant. There was a long, lot of time when, when Detroit kids were basically, they could stay living in Detroit but go to school in some of the suburban areas, and it was quite powerful, and they had a big impact. And, and part of what made it work was that they were able to take most of those dollars uh, attached to them with them. Um, so the, the boundaries were more permeable. Uh, but can I think, oh, go ahead. Oh, Neil. no, go ahead. I'll just say, um, so Greg, I, I agree with you. You know, we should reduce the reliance on property taxes. I'm for all the litigation that tries to equalize funding and put a greater emphasis on state funding. Um, but my position is, is that we need to go further, right? So, so equal spending isn't nearly enough. I mean, as, as Mike points out, you know, D.C. spends more per pupil than the surrounding suburbs, and we see results that are, are much poorer. Now, uh, what, what, the reason I want to challenge my friends who are supporting simply um, equalization and adequacy in funding is that, you know, Brown took us beyond that. Right. That is uh, so. We're, right now, we have separate and unequal. Uh, we could have, through re tax reform uh, and and the funding of, uh, reform of the funding of schools, uh, separate and uh, apparently equal. But I think the Montgomery County study showed us that even if you spend more in high poverty areas, uh, that an individual low-income student will do better in an integrated environment. And that's why, to my mind, the, the simple um, focus on financing isn't ambitious enough. Sure. Yeah. Actually, if there are more questions. Yeah, any, or, any questions? This gentleman in the center here. Thanks for keeping them brief. You, you, mm -hmm. I really appreciate these nice, concise questions. My, my name is Tom Frank. I'm uh, from one of the surrounding counties in uh, Maryland. and. Uh, uh, I, I heard uh, the comment that uh, we don't want to let the market go too far here, if I understood you uh, correctly. Uh, and on the other Mike. hand, uh, y yes. Yeah. And uh, right. I, I would imagine that uh, Milton Friedman would have some trouble with that argument. Uh, so with a choice of either diversity or, or letting the market choose, uh, correct me if I'm wrong with any of these facts, but I believe there was a, a large group of Asian-American students in the San Francisco area uh, that did extraordinarily well in school. Uh, and uh, the state government decided that they should pick so many kids from each geographic region to go to the state universities. As a result of that, a number of the Asian-American parents decided they wanted to go to a different school district because they were, their kids were so good that they could make it in their county. So it seems to me, ultimately, we want parents to be free to choose, not diversity. Right. So w let me clarify what I was arguing again. What, what I was arguing is that if, if, especially if we stick to our current system, which is not a choice system, which is this neighborhood zone system, uh, in places that are gentrifying, um, we have this opportunity to create diverse schools, but we'll lose the opportunity if we stick to that neighborhood zone system, because eventually the neighborhoods will 
you know, become entirely, say, upper middle class, and then the schools will as well. Um, I would argue in D.C., for example, what we might want to do is pick some schools in parts of the city, like maybe now in, in uh, the center of the city in, in Adams Morgan or Columbia Heights, especially some schools that are currently under-enrolled that haven't started to gentrify, and try to say for those schools, we're going to use some kind of school choice zone idea where they're going to draw, they're going to be choice schools, they're going to draw from all over the city, and we're going to build into the design uh, that we're going to purposely make sure that half the seats are for middle-class kids and half the seats are for upper, uh, for uh, low-income kids. Um, then to make sure that even if those neighborhoods become completely upper-middle-class uh, in the next 10 years, there'll be some schools that are diverse for the parents that want diverse schools. Because if we don't do something like that, those parents won't have that choice. And, and my argument was just like if we let big box stores go everywhere, then People who want to live in Old Town Alexandria or something like it won't have that choice. So that'd be my argument. Anybody else want to chime in? And we have time for one more question, I think, if there is one more from the floor. Anybody? You're just totally happy with this panel, aren't you? Mm -hmm. There's no more issues. Um, <clears throat> you know, th there's a way I want to uh, pick up on just a tiny kind of passing reference that Rick made. Um, which is this idea that, um, and I've heard this elsewhere, that the public schools have kind of become the only public institution left standing. Um, and it, it, there's a way in which we're, we're putting a great burden on them um, by asking them to do all these things um, that I think we, we kind of agree they should be doing. And I guess maybe, maybe my last question um, would be to, for you guys to sort of answer in as short a way as you possibly can. I mean. It, not so much is it asking too much for the schools to bring us all together, but um, is it is it a practical uh, is it a practical thing to ask them to do? I think I think we have no choice. I mean, it's it's the last thing standing, as you suggest, Greg. I mean, we we were talking the other day that you know we we become so segmented where we're all watching different news channels. Uh, we're all uh, segmenting ourselves uh, increasingly by residential areas. And, and the public schools, if, uh, if structured correctly, can, can overcome some of that and, and give kids a, a common understanding uh, of American identity and, and of uh, a particular set of, of values. I mean, Shanker used to talk about the, the fact that, um, you know, the, uh, democracy has to be taught each generation. We just assume it's something that will, will go on and on. But that has to be uh, part of what the public schools do. And, and it seems to me more important than ever, as we are going to become a majority-minority nation, that the public schools stand as an institution to, to unite us. Mike, you want to take it? No, I mean, I, I think I like that notion, but let's be honest. Most public schools today do not play this purpose, okay, because most public schools today are quite segregated, um, and so they don't have the opportunity to play this purpose. So I, my, I'm back again. You, uh, I heard this. I think there should be a place in our public education system for schools that do want to play that purpose, and we've got to figure out how to make sure that they can be created and that they can be sustainable over time. 
Well, you, I, you I mean, the last word. Sure. Oh, hey, great. Go for it. Um, I, well, I mean, I agree with Mike that I don't think they, historically, clearly, they've never really done what they were supposed to do for the most part. I don't think they really can because we're all diverse people who want lots of different things out of life. And the reality is the most you can do is you say, okay, you're all going to be in these schools and you can kind of force people together physically. But you can't make people like each other, and you can't make them agree on things. The best you can do, maybe you can get something that's sort of watered down that you all tolerate, but that's not nearly the same thing. And there are other things that bring us together. I didn't get into all this, but historically what's brought us together is actually mutual self-interest. It's commerce. It's working together because even if we're from different groups, working together helps us to, to move ahead. And so those are the things that drive us together, and we ask way too much to say our schools should do what it turns out is pretty impossible for them to do. Wait, hold on. Let's give you a mic. What, what the heck? You said something that was very disturbing. But I, I, I say, I'm sorry, say, say who you are again? I'm Gomez and I represent Hispanic serving institutions. I don't think that we necessarily, if, if people want to segregate themselves, uh, based on social class or race, that's not the purpose of what education should be. Education should be to ennoble us with information and knowledge and learn <coughs> to live with each other, regardless of race, gender, or whatever, but by simulated people select themselves into a system, you could very much move towards segregation based on some very, very ugly things, uh, based on what we had previously, where people selected themselves on the basis of race. So uh, if, if communities, uh, don't want to integrate in terms of uh, our job is to uh, provide our young people with a situation and environment where they learn to live with each other, regardless of race or gender. Okay. And Thanks. I just, I, the gentleman, I, I would like your response because you're the one who uh, yeah. said we should you just let people Sure, I'll just that. say it real fast. We can, oh, yeah. we, we're, we're running a little late, so we can talk about this more if you want at the lunch. But what you're asking the schools to do is something that they've generally proven they can't do. If people are going to get along, it has to be something they want. What we have seen is that as people live together and work toward mutual self-interest, they do get along. But when you force everyone to say, here are the schools you're getting, now hash out what they're going to teach, that doesn't cause people to all get along. Typically what it causes them to do is to fight with each other. And fighting is divisive. And we can look, especially outside of this country, and see that the way that was resolved was to no longer make them fight. So I, I, I very much appreciate the, the noble goals here. But we have to deal in reality. And I think the reality is showing us those goals cannot be met by public schools. You know, you, you talked about common goals earlier. You know, that schools need common goals. And I think our common goal is to get some lunch. Yes. Um, thanks so much. We can talk about this forever. I really appreciate the questions and the panel. Thanks again. Thank you.